If you've got a Bible, if you brought a Bible, grab it. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the end of your row, or you might see some in the seat back in front of you, or you can pull out your phone and Google Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter, actually, excuse me, Luke chapter 17. Uh, we're going to be looking at a parable in Luke chapter 17. So go ahead and turn there, find your place. We've been going through a series uh, on the parables of Jesus for the last several weeks, and it's been really good and really challenging. And we wanted to hear from Jesus himself. He's the reason that we meet. He's the reason that we sing. And so we thought, let's see what Jesus has to say. And so we've been looking at uh, the parables, which are stories, metaphorical stories, uh, that he tells to prove or to explain the kingdom of God. And so we'll see today we have another challenging parable that explains to us something very important about God's kingdom. And so this whole week, and, and you'll see when we get there, I've been thinking about this idea of, of hierarchy, of you know some people being more important than others. I'm also a huge basketball fan. Are there any basketball fans? Anybody basketball fans? Okay, three people, great. <laughs> I'm going to be putting together a team. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. And uh, I love basketball, and you may or may not like this, but for my whole life, pretty much, uh, well, my young adult life, my favorite player has been Kobe Bryant. Yeah, right? <laughs> now, if you know Kobe, you know, he's not easy to love, but I also love another guy named Steph Curry. Steph Curry, yeah, he's much easier to love than Kobe, but here's the thing, they're very similar, and, and, and if you're a basketball fan, you know this, just this last week, there was a night of basketball that was a great night of basketball. It was Kobe Bryant's final game in the NBA, his final game, he had a 20-year career, and Steph Curry's team, the Golden State Warriors, were going after a record-setting 73 wins. No one in the history of the NBA has won more than 72 games, and the team that did that was Michael Jordan, everybody loves him for some reason, Michael Jordan's team uh, back in the day. And so what ended up happening is Kobe Bryant, in his very last game as an old man, you know, 37 years old, an old man, uh, he scored not 20, not 30, not 40, not even 50 points on his final game. He scored 60 points in his final NBA game ever. And nobody saw it coming. Unexpected. I mean, he's that old that people thought, man, we hope he gets 15 points <laughs> so it doesn't ruin his finale. 60 points. It was incredible. And at the same time, going on um, was Steph Curry, and they ended up uh, winning 73 games. And I watched a little bit of both games, and what I realized when I watched these guys is that they're just different kind of guys. They're at a different level than everybody else on their team. They have different roles on their team. And it made me think, yeah, listen, nothing against the three people that play basketball here, nothing against myself, nothing against anybody on their teams, but the reality is those guys are just in a different class than the rest of us. They're just those special kind of people. And so there is real hierarchy in the world. You know, you say, ah, oh, everybody's equal, and, you know, everybody gets a trophy at the end. Well, that's not true. Only one player has ever scored 60 points on their final NBA game, and only one team led by one player has ever won 73 games. It's just the way of the world. There are just some people that are in a different level. The other thing I realized 
and you'll see when we get to the parable, is that there's this really interesting thing that you see again and again in Scripture when God talks about his relation to human beings. In fact, when Jesus talks about himself, he calls himself the good shepherd. Psalm 100 predicts this, saying, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So even before Jesus came on the scene, there was, a scene, there was this idea of God as the shepherd. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Matthew 9, now we're into the gospel. Jesus is now on the scene. And it says this, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. John 10 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls to his own by name and leads them out. So there's this idea that Jesus is the shepherd, which means, unfortunately, we're the sheep. And it's this metaphor that we see again and again in Scripture. God, the shepherd. Jesus, the shepherd. Human beings, the sheep. And I think, I don't know, Is this a little bit uncomfortable to think about this? Being sheep? Right? Because I kind of like to think of myself, and you might like to think of yourself as smart and capable and self-sufficient and properly bathed. Sheep aren't any of those things. They're pretty dumb, totally dependent. They smell terrible. So why does Jesus choose this title, the Good Shepherd? Why does he want to remind us that we're sheep? Is this a little off-putting to you? If you walked up to some of your friends, said, hey, smell great today, smell like a sheep, you're not very smart either. (laughs) I don't know how much they'd like that, and so we don't, I think, like to think of ourselves as sheep, but that's what Jesus says. So I thought more about this, is this true? Is Jesus the shepherd and we're like sheep? And the more and more I thought about it, the more I realized, yeah, we're not that smart. We're kind of dumb. And so I decided, you know, what's one, of the re- what's one of the ways that, you know, that reminds me that I'm more like a sheep than a shepherd? And I thought one of the ways is some interesting warning labels that we see on some of the products we use, right? Have you ever heard some of these? So I went online and I looked up dumb <laughs> warning labels. And one, in the category of appliance, one iron, like ironing board, had this, or uh, had this, Warning on the label. It says this. Warning. Never iron clothes still on the body. I said, uh, I wish they didn't have to warn me of that, but I probably might have tried it, so I couldn't be too upset. Then I saw this one about a vacuum cleaner. It says, one, do not use to pick up gasoline or flammable liquids. Two, do not use to pick up anything that is currently burning. I thought, wow. Yeah, I might have tried that too. Then I saw this one for a floodlight. You know, like a floodlight, like to light up in a flood-like fashion when it's dark, right? And it had this, it had this warning, warning, do not, excuse me, it had this uh, instruction. This floodlight is capable of illuminating large areas, even in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks. 
Uh, then I saw this uh, windshield visor, right? Windshield visor said this warning: Do not drive, or not sorry, not windshield visor. It was like, you know, like when it's sunny out and you put the giant windshield sunglasses on, right? You've seen those? I've always wanted some. I've never had it. it says warning: Do not drive with the sh- sunshade in place. Remove sunshade before starting the ignition. Okay. I saw this of a blow dryer. Warning, do not use while sleeping. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. You take a shower right before bed, you turn it on, just lay it next to you. It'll be dry by the morning. It'll save time. And then this is my favorite in the appliance section. It's from a Swedish chainsaw company. And I'm sad to say that I, too, am Scandinavian, so this is written for me. It says, do not, attempt, this is my favorite, do not attempt to stop the chainsaw with your hands or genitals. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad day to be Swedish, man. It's a sad day. Uh, this was my favorite in the clothing section. This was a uh, <laughs> champion swimmer-supported jockstrap. It said this, This product is only to be descri- uh, prescribed by a physician and fit only by a trained technician. <laughs> it's like, wow, we can't figure out. How to fit our own jockstrap. Okay, in the food section, it's Hot Pockets. I love Hot Pockets. Hot Pockets. Anybody love Hot Pockets? Okay. It says, this product must be cooked prior to eating. This is a frozen food. <laughs> it's good to know not to chomp into a frozen burrito. This was a salad dressing uh, instruction written on the cap that said, twist to open. Uh, this Hagen, Haagen-Dazs ice cream said, caution, ice cream is cold. <laughs> this mineral water said, suitable for vegetarians. That's good to know. This Heinz ketchup instruction said, put on food. Oh, that was good. Then we got some household goods. <laughs> I like these ones. These ones are really funny. Uh, these are like fire starting logs, right? To start fire. Uh, it says this, caution, risk of fire. Then the wind... Win- Windex, this is important. If you don't know this, listen closely. If you don't use Windex a lot, just listen to this. Do not spray in your eyes. Uh, oh, this one's important. Uh, electric rotary tool. Electric rotary tool says this. This product is not intended to be used as a dental drill. People need to know this stuff, guys. They're sheep <laughs> without a shepherd. And liquid plumber, oh, we've all used it, we've all needed it, says, warning, do not reuse the bottle to store beverages. Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, save the environment, but, you know, find a different bottle. Just not your liquid plumber. And then, of course, there's always funny things on costumes. I don't know if you've ever seen these on costumes. Like a Superman costume says, warning, this garment does not enable you to fly. And then my favorite of all, because I love the Powerpuff Girls, the Powerpuff Girl costume says this, warning, you cannot save the world. Important to know. So we need some help, right? Like, obviously, these are written because somebody tried them, and they're like, we got sued. We better put this on the label. Do not stop the chainsaw with your genitals. So is it so wrong that we are called sheep and Jesus the shepherd? I don't think so. I think it's actually a pretty good title for us. I think we are human beings like sheep, and Jesus isn't using sheep as a derogatory term. He's just saying it matter of fact. He's saying you need me. You're valuable. I want to watch over you. I want to protect you. But you need a shepherd. We also know that sheep are very important parts of 
the economy, particularly in Jesus' day. They were so important. Without sheep, much could not be accomplished, and so sheep are important to the economy. So he's not using the term necessarily in a derogatory sense. It's just a reality check. He's the shepherd, and we're the sheep. Now before we get into this parable, I'm setting all this up. I want to just remind you, and I promised my wife that I'd remind you, because this is a challenging parable. Let me just remind you of all the other things God is, and we'll see something that God is tonight. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is our comforter. God is our redeemer. He's compassionate and faithful. He gives us gifts. He gives us help in times of need. He's patient. He's kind. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Scripture also tells us all those things about who God is. Remember those. And read with me now in Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. It says this. Starting in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Basically, this is a rhetorical question and everyone in his audience would have known, of course not. That's not the way it works. Your servants don't come and eat before you eat. So they would have said, of course not. Verse 8, will he not rather say to his servant, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Rhetorical answer, of course not. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Wow pretty matter of fact. I don't know. Is that the way you tend to think about God in relation to you? Now what's important to understanding this parable is what a servant was. There's many words that could be used and many positions that could be held. Of course you had the landowners. Those were the rich and they were few and they owned the land and there are several different people that worked the land. There were those who were stewards. This was kind of like a middle manager. Oftentimes landowners would own many different pieces of property. Sometimes landowners were living in a far place and they had their stewards that would manage their property for them. So that's one role. There was also tenants. Those are people that could rent plots of land from these big landowners. They could rent land and work the land. And then there were the servants. And servants, they didn't rent and run their own land. They just worked for the landowner. And these were full-time employees. And uh, they probably weren't paid a salary, but as we see, they were given food and drink, and uh, they had enough to live, and their job was secure. And then there was another category, and this, were, this was day laborers. And we'll get into a couple parables that speak about day laborers in a couple weeks, but day laborers were different than servants in that every day they would go wait for somebody to hire them for that day. This would be equivalent to some of the guys that you might see outside of the Home Depot waiting to be hired for a project that day. And there was almost no security in that job, right? Because every day you could either get picked up or not picked up. So a servant is one step above a day laborer, but he is still a servant. He doesn't own any of the land. 
He doesn't get to decide what the work is, but he's got a steady job and a way to provide for himself and his family. So what we see here is, in this parable, a master and a servant. So there's this relationship. And from this parable, I, I, I think what you see is, is hopefully obvious to you, is that there's a commentary on a work ethic here. Most of us, I think, in America in 2016, we think of work as something that we must be rewarded for, almost instantaneously. So if I work, I get rewarded. I don't have to wait for my reward. Instead, this parable teaches something a little bit different. It says, no, you work not for the reward, but you work out of a sense of duty. You do what you've been commanded to do. What is duty? What, what does this mean? I want to give a quick shout out to our music team here at Sedaris because I think they, for me, are a pretty good example of this kind of work ethic. They don't get rewarded. Nobody's getting paid to do this. But they show up early. They set up the stage. They rehearse. And then the day is over. And everybody gets to go and talk and mingle and go home and eat and drink. And you know what the music team does? They stay, and they tear down the stage, and they put it in the closet, and then they get to go and eat. And they don't do it for the glory. There's no glory here. It's just a very small crowd. <laughs> You're not going to get famous by playing music at Sedaris. Sorry, guys. If that was your plan, feel free to leave now. <laughs> All right. You're not going to get famous by playing music here. You do it because you feel a sense of duty, that this is what God has asked you to do. This is what he's commanded you to do. And you work hard, and the reward doesn't come. But you do it out of duty. So I just want to thank you guys. And, and if you see people that play music, um, run the soundboard in the back, please give Topher a hug and the other guys that run the soundboard. There's even less glory in the soundboard <laughs> than there is on the stage, okay? Not much here. None there, okay? So tell them thank you. Tell them thank you, shake their hand, buy them a milkshake or a beer, whatever you want to do, because they are modeling for us duty. There's nothing in it for them. And if you've ever studied ethics or understand ethics, there's many reasons to do something or to choose what's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Ethics can also be called morality. How do we know what is right and what is wrong, what to do and what not to do? what pursuits to focus on. And there's three sort of main categories when we understand ethics about how we choose something. One is we pick something that brings about good results. The most famous kind of ethic in this category would be what we call utilitarianism. Probably heard that term. Utilitarianism, the ends justify the means. We do whatever will bring about the best outcome. The other category is being a good person. I choose what to do because this is what a good person would do. This is often called virtue ethics. Make my decisions based on what's virtuous. And the third category is doing something out of duty. Doing it because, particularly in a Christian sense, God commanded it. I do it because God commanded it. We call this duty ethics, or in particular, uh, in the Christian context, we'd call that divine command theory. Because God has said it, we do it. And there's other forms of these, but that's just 
Just a little dusting, okay? Just to get you kind of thinking here. And so which is it? Which should we choose? What should be our ethic? Utilitarianism, virtue ethics, duty ethics. Now I personally believe Christian ethics or morality is a combination of both virtue ethics and duty ethics. And the reason I think that is because actually God doesn't just command us to do something because he wants to, to see if we'll do it. He commands us to do things that are flowing from his character. So God's perfect character leads to perfect commands in order that we might become virtuous, good people. And so if we, as Christians, want to become virtuous, we should listen to the commands of God. See how they're related? And so it's some combination of both. But even as I studied ethics in seminary, I found myself really being drawn more to virtue ethics because it sounds better. I get to decide what is a virtuous person. But I feel like if we leave this second kind of ethics out of it, which is divine command ethics, which is God said it, that's why I do it, we'll miss out on something because our reason, our intellect is flawed and we don't always rightly understand what is the virtuous thing. I think this parable teaches duty ethics, saying, why should I do this or do that? Because my master commanded it. That could be hard to hear. I don't know if it's hard for you. But regardless of how we decide what to do, this parable also teaches us that whatever we do, no matter how well we do it, God's not impressed by our work. He's not impressed with us. He's not amazed by us. He doesn't say, wow, I can't believe you've done that. That's amazing. Instead, he says, you did your duty. This isn't unique to this parable. We see it elsewhere. There's a reason. There's a reason why this is so important to understand. Romans 3 says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And the idea is this. God doesn't love us because we do our duty better than most. Or when others don't, and we do. He loves us regardless. He died for us regardless. And so we do our duty not to earn salvation or earn justification, but we do it because God's commanded. This is so important and hard to realize. Why don't you look at the parable again and notice that twice it talks about eating and drinking. The first time it says when he comes in from the field, will he say come at once and recline at table? The answer, no, he won't say that. But again it comes up after he served his master and it says what? It says then he will eat and drink. Why am I bringing this up? It's not a question of whether or not the servant gets to eat or drink. He gets to eat or drink. The question of it is, why? Why does he get to eat or drink? And it's not because he's done his tasks well. It's because he's a part of God's household. It's because God takes care of his own. 
And even though he's a servant and not the master, he still gets to eat or drink. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the fact that he still gets blessing. So important. Daryl Bach says this, There is no selective obedience here. No bargaining to do something for the master if he does a favor in return. The service of God's servant is not a matter of negotiation, but a matter of duty. So often I feel like we negotiate with God. We say, God, if I do this thing for you, no matter how big, then you've got to give me this. Or God, if you give me this woman to marry, if she says yes to my proposal, God, I promise you that I will serve you the rest of my life. That's not the way it works. It's not negotiation, it's duty. So you say, yeah, of course it's that way. But if I'm honest, and if you're honest, I think that's not the way most people think about God, that it's duty. I think they think about God as a dispensary of goods, and we have to figure out how to push the right buttons. We think God owes us something when we work for him. There's something, I think, deep down in our nature that makes us see God this way. That makes, him, that makes us see God as less than he's meant to be seen. That makes us not see him as our master. And our resp- responsibility is duty to him. And it's deep down in us. And I want to explain why that is. Why most people have a hard time. And I don't know. I mean, when I first read this, I was like, I can't believe this is in the Bible. This is pretty harsh. Go serve me dinner. Why is that hard for me to hear? And I think, I want to explain why that is. When we understand the Bible and the grand narrative that it's trying to paint, we see it playing out in three acts. The first act is creation. The second act is the fall. And the third act is redemption, or God reversing the effects of the fall. And so I want to walk through those and explain how this works because I think this is why it's so deep down in us. The first act, which is creation, we find out that God has created human beings in his image. It's known as the Imago Dei. And in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we see that God creates everything and then his final act of creation is the first man and the first woman. It says he created them in his image. Now there's been much ink spilled over the debate of what does it mean to be created in the image of God? But we know this for sure, that image is this idea of likeness. Uh, For instance, uh, a picture is the image of the actual thing, okay? So there's this idea of image. There's also this idea of like a ruler's signet ring that he would use to stamp in the wax to say, this is from me. If you saw his signet ring stamped in a thing, that's a part of the image. And so we know that human beings are in some way representing God and who God is. That's the idea of the image of God. That's what makes human beings so valuable and different from the rest of creation from a Christian perspective is that we're created in the image of God. So we have innate value that cannot be taken away. But what is the image? What parts of us represent God? Some would say that we are like God in a substantive way, which means that we are like him in in the sense that we have resources like rationality and volition and morality and spirituality and creativity. And so in a substantive way, we're like God. God is all those things. Others would say, no, it's more moralistic, meaning 
We're like God in that He has bestowed upon mankind this original righteousness, that we are holy as God is holy. And thus we live in relationship, perfect relationship with the holy, righteous God. Others would say that it's more of a functional image, meaning that God, that we are like God in that we do God's work, that we are like His ambassadors to the world and that we fulfill His mission and creation and we have dominion over everything else. Lots of books written on this. If you're interested, I could point you in the right direction. I think each of these has something to do with the image. Each of these has something to do with the image, so I'm not going to pick one. But today what I want to focus on is that third category, which is the functional image of God, meaning that God has created us in His image that we might work out His plans. You see that? We are His workers. We serve His mission, His bottom line, His goals as His image bearers. So think about that. That's how God created us. That's what we were intended to do. To be his functional image in the world. To be the hands and feet of his plans for his creation, for his land. But something happened. And it happened pretty quick. Right there in the second chapter of Genesis, we see the beginnings of it. And we call this the fall. Which means that we fell from grace. We fell from glory. We fell from a place of royalty. We are no longer what God had created. And what we find is that this fall is related so closely to this function, functional image bearing. Which is to say, God created us to hear his commands and work them out. And what happens is temptation enters the story. The serpent tells the man and the woman why do you need to listen to what God said to do? Why don't you just take it upon yourselves, become your own boss, decide what to do on your own? Why do you need Him to tell you? And they think about it, and they say, yeah, that would be nice. That would be fun to not have to ask God what to do next, but just get to decide. And as the story goes, that's the, decision, or that's the path they chose. They decided to go around God's commands, do it their own way, and the rest is history. And if we believe the Bible and we understand what it says, we believe that we inherited from those first parents, Adam and Eve, it was passed down, this rebellious nature, we call it original sin, but it's like we got this rebellious gene from them, and so each human being ever since, has also longed to be in control of their own life, and so it is so hard to just hear the commands of God and do what He says, because we are fallen, and we've been born into a fallen world. You say, I don't know if that's so true about me, Dave. Raise your hand if you like your boss at work. Okay, now raise your hand if you're not a liar. Okay. Okay, I was trying to say you're all lying, but um, there's something about our boss, right? Even if he's the nicest boss in the world, it's hard sometimes to just do what he says. Either I'm just so much more fallen than you, or this is true, and y'all are being nice to your boss. But there's just something about the nicest of bosses that sometimes we just don't want to do what they say. We say, I could do their job better than them. I know I could. You want to know how I know this? Talk to Laura. 
Laura works for the church, by the way. And the thing is, the nicest of bosses, sometimes it's hard to just do what they say. I think it's true. And I think it's because, for some reason, we rebel against those in authority over us. And I think it's because of the fall. Here's the great news, though. In the final act of God's story, He is reversing the effects of the fall. He is redeeming the fallen creation. And it's affected everything, the fall. He's redeeming it. But how do you reverse a crack in the image of God? How do you reverse that? How do you turn it around? The answer is, we have to figure out some way. Because here's what's happened. God was here, and we were here. And we decided, you know what? I want to be here and put God here. I want him to serve me. Or, if we're kind of righteous, we do this. God's here, I'm here. I'll just come up here and I'll co-found my life with God. We'll work together. We'll have an equal vote in the boardroom. And we'll just work side by side to the greatest outcome possible. Either way, we've put God where he wasn't supposed to be. So we have to put him back. We have to come here and move God back to the top of the org chart. How do we do do that? How do we put him back in his rightful place? Well, the great news is God started the process for us. And when we encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us that we are out of place, that we've perverted the order of things, and that God has done something to make it right, which is to himself come down to our level so that we might reconnect with him, understand who he is, that he's for us and not against us, that he's come down, and he's done this through the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. He's come down to our level because although we think we've sort of come up here, we're still down here. We've just in our minds put God below us. He comes actually in reality down to us, reconnects with us, makes eye contact with us so that we might see him again. A great illustration of this is I have an 11-month-old son, Grayson, and there's lots of times when he's just not doing what I want him to do. And he knows it because he never wants to look up and see me. And so you know what I have to do? I have to get down on my hands and my knees and I've got to look him in the eye and I've got to say, hey, hey, right here, (laughs) right here, bud. Look at me, reconnect, then I stand up and I say, I'm your dad, <laughs> go to sleep. You know, I don't know, it never works, but I'm trying it because I learned it from the gospel. I reconnect, I make eye contact with him that he might see how absurd it is that he's trying to lead his own life. I mean, come on, man, you can't feed yourself. Reconnect, come on, man. But then here's the great thing about the gospel. He not only just says it, He models it for us. Jesus models for us what true servanthood looks like. And not only does he model it for us, then he goes and he dies in our place to pay the price for our sin, for our rebellion against God. He pays the debt that was owed to make things right, to straighten out what was crooked, so that we can put God back in his proper place, back underneath his rule and his reign in our lives. That's the gospel. And I want to just come back to that fifth point, if you're counting with me. 
which is that Jesus not only dies in our place, focus on that a lot because it's very important, but he also becomes the exemplar of what servanthood looks like. Jesus becomes the perfect model for human servanthood because he came down and he took on humanity fully. He's fully God and fully man. And he lived his life in service to his Father so that we could see what service looks like. Philippians 2 says this, have this mind amongst amongst us, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that imagery of the image of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is the most humiliating form of death in Jesus' day. So Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, perfectly fulfilling the role of image bearer of God, which God gave to humanity in Genesis 1, but that we lost at the fall. Jesus comes, takes on humanity, and lives it out perfectly as Adam should have, showing us what it looks like to be a servant of God. And he does it perfectly. And he represents God the Father through his humble service and submission to every directive that the Father gives to him. And this is important to understand. This is really important to understand because I think sometimes we think that Jesus just knew what to do because he was God. But he checked that at the door when he put on humanity and he put on a new cloak and it was a cloak of non-knowledge, which is to say he did not know the fullest plans of God. And so he, like us, had to wait upon the Father to tell him what to do next, to tell him where to go next, to tell him when he would go to the cross. And so he, too, had to wait upon the commands of his Father, and he did it perfectly. He never said no. He never did it less. He never added his own agenda. He just did what the Father did. And so, this is why Scripture again and again and again tells us to become like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.1 says this, Be imitators of me, this is Paul speaking, just as I also am an imitator of Christ. John 13, 15 says, Jesus said, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Romans 8 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, what? Conformed into the image of his Son, which is Jesus. Ephesians 4 says this, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers, for equipping of the saints for the work of service, the work of service, to the building up of the body until we all attain that unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to who? To the fullness of Christ. 1 John 2 says, The one whom says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he, that's Jesus, walked. 2 Corinthians says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, 
just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so again and again, what is our goal? It's to be like Christ. And how are we to be like him? In his servanthood to God. So Christ's likeness is synonymous with what? Our original design. He shows us what we were originally tended to be. And so when we look at him and we say, that's way too hard, I could never do that. Instead of thinking, I'll never be able to do that, we should think, wow, how far I have fallen from my original design. And then we ask God to give us the strength to grow back into that image. So to understand this parable, to know how to get back to our rightful place in the kingdom of God, we must start with God. We must look at who God is. Start with God. Always start with God. Don't start with yourself. Start with God. And know that one, God is sovereign, that God is not the equal of any human being, two, that God requires our service, and three, that God does not reward on the basis of merit. That's what this parable teaches us. And let me say it again in a few more ways, just to make sure it sinks in. The kingdom of God is hierarchical. God is the king, and we are his servants. This is not a democracy. We are not on equal footing with God. We don't say to God, if you do your part and I do my part, then we can really accomplish something here. We serve God. He does not serve us. Let me say that again. We serve God. He does not serve us. Now, I want to tell you very quickly three reasons why that's exciting news. Because to this point, you're saying, wow, this is hard. This sucks. I'm a servant. Here's why this is very exciting news. This is not depressing. This is exciting news. The first reason is this. The pressure is not mine. The pressure is not mine. I don't have to decide what to do and what not to do. I simply have to listen and obey. I don't have to decide what to do. You know what the hardest part of my job is? It's not preparing sermons. It's not dealing with frustrated people. The hardest part of my job is deciding what to do next. <laughs> I think so many of us think, man, I hate CEOs, I hate executives. They get paid way too much, and they do. But the reason they get paid so much is because their job sucks. It's terrible. My dad was the CEO. I've never seen the man so stressed in my life because it's a hard job, because making the decisions, having to decide what to do next, that is incredibly difficult work. And can you imagine if you were the master of the universe and you had to decide what to do next? If God said, you know what, go ahead, take it. You're now the CEO. Figure out how to put this thing back together again. I'm just going to be hanging out over here. I'm going to be running payroll. It's going to be awesome. Nothing wrong with running payroll. It's a great blessing. <laughs> you don't want to be CEO. Trust me. You want God to be the CEO of the creation that he's made. Second reason this is exciting. My work has meaning. My work has real meaning. You're not the master. God is. You work for God. God, in a sense, is your employer. And our work is not just completing his commands, but it's fulfilling his purposes. And what's amazing about this is that we get to cooperate with God to fulfill his purposes. 
He's not just sending us out to do random tasks to see if we'll obey. We're fulfilling His purposes and we cooperate with Him. He gives us power and strength to accomplish it. And best of all, we can know that all the work that we do in cooperation with God will be preserved. It will last forever. It will not be burned up. It doesn't go away. It lasts. That is exciting. And so we know and we can say about all the work that we do for God, and we can't say this about all the work we do for ourselves or even all the work we do for our community, but the work we do for God, all of it has meaning. Real, lasting meaning. And it shapes us when we participate in meaningful work. Don't you want your work to have meaning? Isn't that what so many people want? They just want their work to have meaning? Because God's the master and we're not, we know that when we're cooperating with Him, our work has meaning. The third reason this is exciting. We are not measured against anything but ourselves. You're not measured against anything but yourself. And the game of life, the game of capitalism, it's overwhelming. We must try to transcend our current status. We must try to make it big, to make mama proud, to beat the curve, to be the next big thing, to create the next great product. And to be honest, it's exhausting because we have to be something that we're not in order to make it and win in the game. And if you look right before this parable, what spurred Jesus on to teach this parable, if you look at Luke 17.5, it says this, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which is to say, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. If you had even a little, you could do amazing things. Your main responsibility, the main responsibility of a disciple is to trust God. Trust God. Do your work and be satisfied in your work. Sometimes I feel guilty about all that I've been given, the skills, the resources, the advantages. I don't have to to feel guilty about that. I don't have to feel guilty about any privilege that I've been given. All I have to do is ask, what part of his vineyard has he put me in, and what resources has he given me, and then I have to work out his commands in my life to my full potential. And I don't have to feel guilty about it. I don't have to feel guilty that I've been given, that I've been born in the United States of America and not in Nicaragua. I don't have to feel guilty that I grew up in an upper middle class family and not in poverty. But I do have to recognize what I've been given and the task God has given me and I have to work it out and be satisfied in my work. I have to be reverent to God, listen to Him, but I don't have to be guilty about the things I've been given. Whatever you've been given, even if it's not much, even if you've been given almost nothing, In comparison, whatever you've been given, here's what you do. Do your duty. Nothing more, nothing less. Just do your duty. I call this the Forrest Gump principle. Does anybody love Forrest Gump like me? I love Forrest Gump. The guy was good at one thing, running. And every time somebody said, run, Forrest, He just ran. And this guy accomplished, not fictional character, but he accomplished so much because he had 
A simple principle. When somebody tells me to do something, I do it. You know? Bubba told him everything about shrimping, and so he just did what he told him. That's inspiring. It's not simple. It's inspired living. Do what you're told by those in authority over you. We've lost this. And this is so hard to remember. Okay. This is, this is hard to do. I know, this is, I know this is hard to do, to just do your duty. And I know it's hard mainly because of Grayson, because he's got a duty, and I try to tell him to do it, and he almost never does his duty. And, and just the other night, I was so upset at him because he'd spilled everywhere, he wasn't going to bed, and so I just commanded him, Grayson, clean up that mess and cook your own dinner. A simple command. Anybody would understand that, right? He had no idea what he was talking about. He just smiled at me and said, ha, and he rubbed his hand in the dirt. Okay, we have the same problem. It seems simple. Oh, God's told us what to do, but we're just like Grayson. There's two things we don't know. We don't know, one, what God is saying. <laughs> That's why we don't do his commands. It's a real thing. How do we know what God is commanding us to do? How do we listen? Well, we start by reading his word, but even that can be hard sometimes because it can be confusing. There's many interpretations, right? How do we understand? Well, here's what I'd suggest. Go find somebody who's been working for God longer than you and ask them how to do the job. Ask them how to read the instruction manual. You don't just show up at new hire training and just assume, yeah, I'll figure this out when I go. You go and ask somebody who's been doing it for 25 years or a year even. Go talk to somebody. Maybe we don't know what God's saying because we don't choose to listen. You have to actually want to know what he's saying to get it right. Maybe you missed the beginning of the staff meeting. I don't know if you've ever been late to class or <laughs> they're doing a project or you show up late to work and everybody's working. You have no idea what's going on. What's our natural human inclination? It's to pretend like we know what we're doing, you know. <laughs> Biology class, oh, yeah, they've got some frogs and, you know, you start cutting it open. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Just ask somebody. I have no idea what I'm doing. Don't be embarrassed. Just stop. Say, hey, I showed up a little late. So the beginning of class, can you tell me what I'm supposed to be doing? The other thing, the other problem we have is we say, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't have the skill or the power to do it. And the thing that we learn from Jesus and the thing that you'll learn from people who have been on the job for a while is that, yes, your muscles are atrophied. You are not as in, in as good of shape as the image bearer of God as you should be. No one is since the fall. You have to build that up and you build it up by daily attending to the tasks that the Lord has given you, but you also have this other thing known as the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, that literally gives you power to do things that you did not know you could do. And I experience it every week when I stand up here and preach. And I experience it when my marriage is hard and I have the ability to forgive. And my wife has the ability to forgive me. I know that God has given me a special dose of power to do the things that he's called me to do, to command me to do. Last week we talked about forgiveness that is so hard. God gives us extra strength that is not human to do the tasks that he's given us. So is it good news that Jesus is our, shep our shepherd? Heck yeah. It's the best news ever that we don't shepherd ourselves. Oh God, thank you that you've made me a sheep and that you watch over and you protect me and that even if 
99 sheep are good, but one goes stray. The, the Lord comes and he finds the, the one and brings it back to the 99. It's the best news ever. John 10 says, I am the good shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Of course, God knows our reluctance to acknowledge our need for him. He knows that we've put ourselves above him. He's not blind to the fact. He knows that we need a shepherd. He knows that we need something to bring us into right relationship with him. And Jesus looks past this false bravado, this pride that swells in us, and he offers us what our soul longs for. This is good news. This is the news of the gospel. This is the truth, and it doesn't get any better than this. There's a supreme person, the master God, who understands our need for guidance and protection and meaningful work and the sustenance of life. And he knows we need it day in and day out. And he gives it to us. And he delights to give it to us. He loves to be our master and to let us serve him as sheep and he the shepherd. This is what we're meant to be. This isn't bad news. This is what we're meant to be. And this image of the good shepherd that was carefully chosen by God so that we'd remember, yes, he's the shepherd, we're the sheep, yes, there's a huge power, wisdom, and significance gap between God and us. But Jesus teaches us that our fears of him being a tyrant, a domineering master, those are misplaced. He's everything but a tyrant. He wants to be our leader, not our tyrant, if we're willing to follow him. That's the sticky part. Will we follow him? That's our duty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you've given us guidance and directive, and we pray that we would come to know and understand what you're calling us to do, what the work of your kingdom is, and we hope that we know that you don't love us because we do the work, that you've created us to serve you, but our service to you is our greatest good. When your kingdom functions properly with us as your image bearers, as your servants, as your workers, we become, and the world becomes, everything that you've intended it to be, and it's so much better than we could have hoped for. We pray that you'd give us the strength and the courage to do our duty and to serve you well as our Lord and Master. Amen.